Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called Onward, a study in the book of Acts. Together, we're learning how to live as an ordinary people, empowered to continue Jesus' mission. Thanks for listening. Well, let me invite you to grab your Bible, if you brought it, your smartphone, your iPad, whatever you have, and turn it to the New Testament book of Acts. If you don't have any of those things, I uh, still want to encourage you to join us there. So we have some Bibles in the seats underneath you there. I'd uh, love for you to grab one of those, and you can find this on page 882. Well, as already has been mentioned today as a church, we're starting a new series in the New Testament book of Acts. It's going to take us all the way through Easter. Now, we like studying books of the Bible here, right, Cherry Hills? As we learned last week from Jeff, the Bible is God's word to us as his people. It's to guide us. It's to encourage us. It's to convict us. It's our authority. And it's still as active and living today as it was when it was first written. And so we're going to study the Bible book of Acts in a series we're calling Onward. Now, I've been so looking forward to this study together because Acts is truly one of my favorite books of the Bible. And it's also one of the most thrilling books of the Bible because it shows what a church that is on fire can actually look like. Now, the truth is, today, one of the nicer things people say about the church is that it's irrelevant. It's kind of just there. It's fine for some people, but it really doesn't hold any influence or power or authority anymore in today's culture. But the book of Acts is going to challenge us to see, you know what, that's not how it's supposed to be. The church was not created to be irrelevant or lukewarm or weak. It was created by Jesus to literally change the world. And so the question we're going to be ruminating on together is, how does that actually happen? How do we, as a local church family, change the world? If you're following on your notes, here's the sentence we're framing this entire study around. Here's how we change the world. The book of Acts shows us a picture of an ordinary people empowered to continue Jesus' mission. That's how we change the world. Ordinary people, anybody ordinary in this room? I know I am. Empowered to continue Jesus' mission. We are called to be Jesus to the people God has placed around us. Now, this sounds very similar to the vision statement that we're going after together as a church family. Just as a reminder, I know Jeff showed it last week. I think Brian mentioned it as well. But let's read our vision statement together from the screen here. It says, to see people of every generation giving themselves fully to Jesus and his mission. Now, last week, if you were here, Jeff talked about how we can give ourselves fully to Jesus in 2020 by being in his word each day and devoting ourselves to prayer as his people. But starting today, we're really going to talk about that last half of that section, right? How do we give ourselves fully to Jesus' mission together? Or if you're following, here's the question. What does it look like for us to give ourselves fully to Jesus' mission? Now, have you ever been sent on a mission? You probably have, and you just don't think of it that way. For example, I thought about when I was going to propose to my wife. I had a mission that I had to find the exact perfect ring. And it was an adventure. It was fun. What would she like? What, what is going to make her happy? And I would go on this mission to find the ring. Some of you did this thing for Christmas where you're like, I got to find the perfect gift for my spouse. Or I got to find the perfect gift for my kids. And I can't wait when they open up to see the look on their faces, right? It's a mission, a mission to find the right gift. And missions are supposed to be exciting. They're supposed to be an adventure. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the book of Acts. They were on mission together. 
and it was exciting. It was an adventure, and I believe, do you believe that's what God still wants us to experience today as his people? We are sent on mission, and sometimes we go, oh, no, that feels like a heavy weight. It's supposed to feel like an adventure. It's exciting. We are called to go into our communities, into our world, onward with Jesus' mission. So here are my two goals for us today. All I want to do today is just introduce you to the book of Acts. It's going to be a little bit more like school time for you, but I hope that's okay. We got to know what we're going to get get into in order to understand it. And then my second goal is to just kind of lay on the table what exactly is the mission Jesus has called us to. So that's where we're headed today. Let's start then with a little bit of background on the book of Acts. I don't know what you know about Acts. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know some things, but let's just get a little on the table here. And we'll look at verses 1 through 5 together to begin. In fact, I'll have you read verse 1 on your notes there. And then I'll just continue on through verse 5. Would you be willing to read that? It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now let me continue. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of things in those five verses, but the most important first question we got to answer is who exactly is writing the book of Acts? And what does he mean by his former book? Well, he gives us a little clue when he mentions the name Theophilus in verse 1, which just also happens to be mentioned in the book of Luke. So, try to be a detective right now. Who do you think wrote the book of Acts? If you're on your notes, the author of Acts is Luke, who also wrote the third gospel. In fact, many people, and you're allowed to do this as well, simply refer to this as one book. It's Luke-Acts. And that's what we're studying, really. It's a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Now, some of you were here several years ago when we studied the Gospel of Luke as a church family. We took a whole year, and we went through that incredible Gospel. Well, this is kind of the sequel, and Luke is kind of the prequel. Luke tells us about Jesus and his life and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Acts talks about Jesus, exalted and his church, which he sends and commissions. In Luke, the Son of Man offers his life, and Acts, the Son of God, offers us his power, his power to his church. And so we have the same author, and Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus. I don't hear that name much anymore today. But we don't really know much about him. We really don't. We can deduce a few things. We think he was probably uh, in the upper class. He was a person of high social standing. He was most likely a Gentile. And what's a Gentile? Anybody who's not? So he's a Gentile believer in Jesus. And he is probably wavering in his faith because of all the pressure and persecution that was being placed on the church in the first century. And we're going to see a lot of that in our study of Acts together. And so Luke's goal here 
is to write a detailed historical account of the life of Jesus and the spread of the church to help Theophilus, and certainly others would have read this as well, to be able to stand firm in their faith despite the opposition they were facing in the first century. In fact, notice what Luke writes in the beginning of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He kind of lays out, here's what I'm doing, here's why I want to do it. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." Ultimately, if you're following on your notes, Luke's goal is that he wants his readers to know with certainty the things we believe. He wants us to know with certainty the things we believe. Now, what do we know about Luke himself? Well, the truth is, uh, he's not mentioned more than three times in the entire New Testament, but we do know he was a doctor, and interestingly, he was not actually a disciple of Jesus. That means he was not an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He was more like an investigative reporter. He's more like a historian. He's like an Indiana Jones type. And if you don't know that reference, then you're too young. You can Google it. Now, fun fact, when I was in college, I was actually a reporter for our school newspaper. And as a reporter, what do you have to do? You have to gather information. You have to gather the facts in order to write an accurate story. And that's Luke. He was a guy who would go out and he would investigate. And so he would meet with kids who grew up with Jesus, with family members that were still alive, and he would gather their story. He would go to the places where Paul would preach and where Peter would preach, and he'd meet with the churches there, and he would do the work of an investigative reporter. He would talk to eyewitnesses. He would gather the oral traditions. He would look at the evidence that was there, and then he would collect it, and he would write it down, what we have here still today. Now, I'll tell you a couple things we do know about Luke. Luke was not Jewish. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament, and he was very, very close friends with the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you get to the later parts of Acts, you'll notice Luke starts saying things like, we traveled here, and we did this, and we did that. And if you read that at first, you might be thinking, well, who's the we? I know who Paul is, but I don't know who the we is. And the we is Dr. Luke. That's Dr. Luke, the traveling companion of Paul. They worked together to spread the gospel. One thing I kind of conjecture, I don't know this for certain, but as I wonder if Luke was actually Paul's personal physician as well. Because if you know anything about Paul, you know that he suffered a great deal for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one more interesting thing about Luke. Did you know just by sheer length, Luke writes the majority of the entire New Testament? Paul, of course, writes the most books, but by sheer length, Luke writes the most of what we have here today. And my goodness, are we grateful that he did what he did, aren't we? especially Acts, because without him writing Acts, we would know very little about the first century church and how it began to spread across the world. We could glean a few things from Paul's letters, but because he wrote this history, we are so blessed and encouraged today. In fact, if you're on your notes there, Acts is unique to the whole Bible, to the whole New Testament, excuse me, because it's the source book of the spread of Christianity. Acts is our history. It's our history. 
And we need to know, you need to know, that it is excellent history. And Luke is an excellent historian. Now you know why I like Acts so much. I'm a history nerd. It is considered excellent, by the way, even from a secular point of view. The English scholar F.F. Bruce wrote a book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable?, in which he spells out the details of Luke's incredible accuracy as a historian. Bruce points out that to have written a history like Luke's was no easy task in those days, but as you dig into it, you see how much work he actually did to make sure it was accurate. For example, if you need some examples, when Luke talks about the leaders of the different cities that they travel to, you can look at other sources and see, oh, yep, they were the leaders during that time. When he talks about the different cities that they travel to and you compare it to other sources during that time, he gets the flavors of those cities right. Yeah, Antioch isn't like Ephesus. Ephesus isn't like Jerusalem. And because Luke is so concerned about accurate history, he gets this down. Luke knew what those cities were like because he was there. Now, again, you may be thinking, that's great, but why does this matter to us? Well, it's important to us because we, friends, have a historical faith. We have a historical faith. Your faith, my faith, is not based primarily on an idea. It's not based on a philosophy. Maybe you know this, but most world religions could exist today without their founder. You don't need a historical Buddha to have Buddhism. All you need is Buddhist teachings. That's not the case with Christianity. If you take away the history, if you reduce it, as some have tried to do, to a religion of mere ethics or ideas, our faith evaporates. It evaporates. This is because our faith is intricately linked to the life, death, and especially resurrection of a real person named Jesus of Nazareth. This is why Luke starts the whole book telling us that Jesus appeared to his disciples for how many days after his resurrection? 40 days. Offering what? Proof. Proof that he was alive. Proof that he is a real person. He says he does things like eat with people. Now, I would say that would be some pretty convincing proof, right? There you are, one of his disciples. You go to his graveside because this guy died. You watched him die. You're bringing some flowers to put on the graveside. And all of a sudden, the grave is open. And you're like, where did this guy go? Well, he's having breakfast with some guys in the city. And so you go and you're like, are you really the guy that I saw crucified? And he says, yep, it's really me. Prove it. Okay, touch it. I would say that's some pretty convincing proof, historical fact. And again, it's important because these guys would have never just given themselves to an idea or to a philosophy. Jesus appeared to them. He rose from the dead. They knew he had died. They stood at the cross and watched him suffer. They heard the blow of the hammers. They saw the soldier come and stick the spear into his side. They saw him laid in the tomb. They knew he was died. In fact, so convinced were they that he died, they scattered in fear that they would be next. It was nice to know him, but man, that ride is over. We got to move on with life. We got to hide. We got to get out of here. But then he rises again. And he appears to them for 40 days, and they begin to see maybe he isn't just a great teacher. Maybe he's not just a philosopher. Maybe he's not even just a prophet. He conquered death, and there's only one person who can do that. That's God. And so they gave themselves to him. They gave themselves to his mission. So convinced were they 
Did you know that almost every one of them, other than John, gave their lives as a martyr in order to continue the mission of Jesus in this world? Nobody would have done that if this was not historical fact. Can we agree with that? I would not give my life for an idea or a philosophy, but I would give my life for a person who rose from the dead. And so with that in mind, as we come to the study of the history of the early church, the second thing we notice in these verses, and this is all what this series is about, is we're not just looking at what God used to do. We're looking at what God is still doing. Amen? We're not just looking at past history as dead history. This is history that is still alive and thriving today. In fact, I love in verse 1, you can see it again on your notes there, where Luke says, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach. Circle that word began in your notes or in your Bible there, because what does that imply to you? Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still at work, and we are invited to be a part of his work still today. The church is God's plan for this world. We are God's plan for this world. This is what Luke is writing about as we see the events unfolding in the history of the first century here. This is what Luke is chronicling. If you're on your notes, God's plan for history is now being fulfilled by God's people. We, ordinary people, are empowered to continue Jesus' mission in this world. Do you believe that God has assembled us together as a church family? That he chose for you to be born where you were born, to live where you live, to attend this church family, to do life together with this church family, to be sent on mission with this church family? Because that is God's plan. That is God's plan for you. It's God's plan for me. And so if you're following, the big idea of Acts is simply this. Jesus' mission is not over. We're not studying a dead past religion. It's just beginning. It's just beginning. We will see it play out in Acts, but please don't miss it. It's going to continue to play out today through us. And that's what we want to study in this book. We want to see every generation, every generation in our church family, giving themselves fully to Jesus and his mission. And so that leads to the second thing we're going to talk about today. Remember, just two things. That's a little introduction to Acts. Now, what's Acts all about? Well, it's all about his mission. And what is his mission for us? That's a great question. And sometimes it's been misunderstood, including by his disciples right here in verses 6 and 7. Take a look at them. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. We see this over and over and over again in the Gospels and still here. The disciples have a wrong idea of what the kingdom of God is meant to look like. In the days between his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is meeting with them and they still teaching them, explaining it to them, they still have this old-fashioned temptation of what this is all going to be about, what the mission of God is going to be all about. You see, they thought of the Messiah as a soldier. He would come, and he would defeat their enemies, and he would once again establish Israel as a dominant force in political world power. That's what they still are thinking here. They're thinking that's what's going to happen. They had been occupied by the Romans— They thought Jesus was now going to kick those Romans out and he would establish Israel as the power they used to be in the past. Now, of course, read the Gospels. Jesus taught them differently. And yet they still don't get it. 
He taught them that his kingdom was not like the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. In fact, look at what Luke writes in his gospel in chapter 17. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's right here. It's right now. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a power kingdom. It's a kingdom of spirit. It's a spiritual kingdom available to any person who will receive it, and they didn't understand that. Now, in a similar way today, I would just say there's things we don't understand about the kingdom of God either, that we don't understand about our mission. We're tempted with two, I don't know, two ways to get out of being on mission with Jesus, I guess, two temptations about this. The first one is we're kind of tempted towards apathy when we talk about all this stuff, I think. You know, I came to know Jesus, my spouse knows Jesus, my kids know Jesus. That's pretty good. I'm set. Everything is comfortable. I'll just sit around and now wait for Jesus to come back. My mission is to go to church every Sunday. And so we get kind of apathetic, and we think, well, I'll leave all that stuff up to the professionals. There's people who get paid for that. In fact, I give money on Sunday, so I know they're getting paid for that. They're the ones that are supposed to be on mission. Or perhaps we think the kingdom will come through political means like the disciples here. I mean, it's hard not to be tempted to think, well, if we just got the right political leader, if we just got the right president, perhaps the kingdom of God would come to America. But you can read 2,000 years of church history and know that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That is not how the kingdom of God comes. It's still a temptation for us today. Apathy, right? Second temptation, of course, is fear. If you're on your notes, then apathy and fear can keep us from pressing onward in mission. Fear. When you think of being on mission, isn't that the first thing you think about? That sounds scary. I don't know what I would say. Will they be offended if I do say something? Do they even care what I have to say? I don't know enough to be able to say anything. I can list many, many more because those are all my fears as well. But here's the thing. We have to know the disciples feared the exact same things. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. The other disciples ran away from Jesus. None of them were super evangelists. Not one of them was an apologist. They were scared. They were ordinary people just like we are. And so what happened to them? How did it change so dramatically? How did these ordinary people, tempted by fear and apathy, change the world? Well, we're given a clue in verse 8, which is really the most important verse in this entire book of Acts. Will you read it out loud with me together? It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's so much in this one little verse. In fact, it's pretty much the outline of the book of Acts. But let's break it down this way. What is our mission anyway? Where are we to take this mission? And how in the world are we ordinary people? supposed to accomplish it. So what's our mission? If you're on your notes, our mission is to be witnesses of Jesus in our lives. That's it. Witnesses of Jesus in our lives. The word witness occurs no less than 39 times in the book of Acts. It is the recurring message of this book. So what does it mean to be a witness? What do you immediately think of when you hear the word witness right now? 
I think of being called to court in order to give a testimony of what I've seen. And that's exactly what it means in the Bible as well here. If you're on your notes, witness means giving testimony to what we have seen and experienced. It just means giving testimony to what we have seen and experienced. So essentially what Jesus is saying is go and tell people what you know, what you've seen, what you've experienced, what you've learned from me. We see all throughout Acts, the disciples do this very thing. And they do it with a very simple message to anybody who would listen. Here's how we know. Here's how we know who Jesus is. Because he is God in the flesh. He paid for our sins. He was resurrected. Now he's exalted in heaven. He calls us to believe in him so that we too can have the forgiveness of sins. It's a simple message. Interestingly, though, all along, whenever they speak, they also demonstrate Jesus' power. As verse 1 says, really important, they did what Jesus did and taught what Jesus taught. They were just ordinary people who were empowered to continue the mission. In fact, did you know people were often surprised by some of the things the disciples did and some of the things they said? Because they were kind of country bumpkins, to be totally honest with you. They weren't people of high position, high education, high power. They were ordinary people, and yet sometimes when people were listening to them, they'd go, Wow, where did this come from? And the same is offered to us today. Now, listen, you may be thinking, as I thought, that's great for them. They literally saw Jesus die. They literally saw him rise from the dead. I have not had that experience. My response to us would be, but surely you have seen. Surely you have heard. Surely you have experienced the work of Jesus in your life and in the life of others. Perhaps you have seen a marriage restored. Could you be a witness to that? Perhaps you have seen a life changed. You have been a witness to that, and we can testify to that. Perhaps you have seen or experienced an addiction conquered. You've experienced that. Can that be something you testify about the greatness of Jesus? I look around this room right now, and I say, I am a witness. I am a witness to the power of Jesus in many of your lives. I see the difference he has made. You know, I, I've had these experiences myself. If you would have told my friends, if you would have told me that I'd be standing up on a stage when I was in high school, speaking to people, I would have been laughing in your face. But I am a witness to what Jesus can do in someone's life. And I am still called to witness. I'm still called to testify to his uniqueness and his greatness. We're all called to that. None of us are called to be water boys or water girls on the sideline of this life. There's no loopholes to this. All of the followers of Jesus say, I am to be a witness to the greatness of God in my life and in the life of others. I like verse 1 because it explains a little deeper what it does mean to be a witness. Often when we hear the word witness, I get scared because I automatically think I got to be good at speaking words. But as it says in verse 1, we're to continue what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And so it's a both and thing here to be a witness. We do the things Jesus did, and yes, when we're given the opportunity, we speak the things Jesus spoke. I want you to think of it like a, a shoe. John Calvin actually called it a holy knot. Jesus works, Jesus' words. So next time you're tying your shoe, just think, Jesus works, Jesus' words. They go together. And so our mission as a church is to be a both and thing. We're witnesses by doing the things Jesus did, but also when given the opportunity, speaking the things Jesus spoke. If you're following, 
Like Jesus, we witness through word and deed. This was always Jesus' strategy in the Gospels. It's our strategy today. Now here's what you're going to learn if you haven't already. It's what Jesus learned as well. We see in the Gospels, we still see it today, that people really like Jesus' works. Even the Pharisees liked the works that Jesus did. They liked his actions. He was a generous giver. He did incredible things. People liked the works of Jesus. A lot of people admire Jesus because of his works. But Jesus wasn't looking for admirers. He's looking for followers. And so when people hear his words, they realize, whoa, this guy is making some pretty incredible claims. In fact, these claims have never been made in history. He is claiming to be the creator of the entire universe. He is claiming that he alone is the only way to God. So they like his works, and then he speaks these words, and they don't like that as much. And if your experience is anything like mine, that still holds true today as I witness, right? The church has done some incredible things throughout the history of the world. Did you know that? Starting hospitals, champion education, caring for the poor and sick. Anybody have a problem with that? Nobody's got a problem with that. In fact, they like that. But when we start to talk about the things Jesus talked about, that's when we run into trouble. People don't like his claims so much. When I was in high school, I had most of my friends were actually not followers of Jesus. And by the time they turned 16, it turned into party time. And so they would have a party every Saturday night. And I wanted to be a witness to them. And so I would go to these parties and I would be the designated driver. Yay, so fun. But I wanted to witness. And I got to be honest with you, most of the time my witness had nothing to do with what I said. It was just being a presence in their life, a person who cared for them. Every once in a while, one of them might say, man, I really respect what you're doing here. Thank you so much for that. And maybe that would lead into an opportunity, but more often than not, they didn't care much. But was I witnessing? You bet I was witnessing by the way that I lived. And that's to be our strategy today. It's still to be our strategy today. It's how we live that often gives us the opportunity to speak what God wants us to speak. We talked about this last fall, but sometimes being a witness is the most simple things in life. Maybe an act of kindness to somebody, giving them a blessing. Maybe it's sharing a meal with them. Maybe it's actually genuinely listening to somebody who's speaking to you. Those are ways that we can witness. My wife and I right now are doing a a devotion with Tim Keller that he wrote along with his wife. And one of the things he says is that a good marriage can be a witness in this world today. Have you ever thought about that? That as you work on your marriage, as you get better on your marriage, you're witnessing to a world all around you? I think of other small things as well. I think about right now I'm coaching my son's basketball team. Again, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not something I would be called to do normally. But listen, I'm not going to be like, hey guys, I'm going to preach the gospel to you before we start tonight. What I am going to do though is hopefully be a positive, encouraging coach. Can that be a witness to the way of Jesus? I sure hope so. Maybe for you, it's at work, not engaging in the gossip around the water cooler. Can that be a witness to people? Absolutely. Maybe at work, you actually work hard instead of taking advantage of the company you work for. Could that be a witness to your boss? Absolutely. Friends, I hope you're sick of me saying this by now, of all of us saying this, but did you know that the primary place where God wants to work through you is in your boring, everyday, normal life? That's where God is at work And you just have to look for the opportunities to witness through word, yes, 
but mostly probably through deed. Every single follower is called to witness. Now, where exactly are we to bring this witness? Well, verse 8 tells us we're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that's good because I don't live in Jerusalem. So that's for them, not for us. Of course, that's not true, right? These words that Jesus speaks have a bigger idea behind them that would have shocked the disciples. Essentially, what he's saying is, I want you to go both into your local context, into your regional context. I want you to cross cultural bonds, racial bounds. I want you to go to the world. One of the reasons I love our banners for this series so much, I don't know if you realize that, but that's a picture of Illinois. There's Sangamon County and there's Springfield down at the bottom. That's where we are. And that's what's supposed to happen, right? We start in our city locally, and then we move regionally. We just hosted a party here for all foster families in Sangamon County. That's a regional way to think about things. But then we're supposed to cross ethnic divides, racial divides. We got to get better at that. We're, we're working towards that. And then we got to go to the ends of the world. And you know, even today, Chuck prayed for some missionaries that we're sending out into the world. One of the things I've loved about Cherry Hills is this has always been our focus. Yes, we want to do things here in Springfield, but we want to take the gospel to the ends of the world as well. And so if you're following, we're called to witness locally, regionally, ethnically, and globally. Something for you to consider might be, what is my Jerusalem? Is it your neighborhood? Your office? Your school? Your workplace? What's our region, Sangamon, Springfield, the city? How can I reach across cross-cultural bounds? And how might I support those who are sent out into the world? Now, the third question, and perhaps most important, and this is what I always was thinking about, is how am I supposed to do this? I'm not good at this. So how in the world am I supposed to do this? How did these ordinary, apathetic, scared disciples get the courage to literally change the world through their witness. Well, according to Jesus in verse 8, if you're on your notes, we can only do this with a power that is outside ourselves. The Greek word used there for power, interestingly, is the word dynamis. Do you know what the English word we get from that is? Dynamite. The word dynamite wasn't a word in the English language until Alfred Noble made the discovery that became his fortune. He discovered a power stronger than anything the world had known up to that time. And when he asked his friend, who was a Greek scholar, what's the Greek word for an explosive power? He told him the word was dynamis. And so Nobel decided, well, I'm going to just call my discovery by that name. So he called it dynamite. And that's the word Jesus uses here, explosive power. This is different from the kind of power we think about today through a title or a role or a political position. It's an explosive, life-changing power that has come through the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's not political power. Political, political power is what the disciples wanted. They thought that was the kind of power that was going to change the world. And Jesus says, no, there's going to be an even more explosive power that's going to come upon you. They could not understand that. They could not understand that. And sadly today, I wonder how many followers of Jesus have understood the power that's available to us in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't know this already, the mission of Jesus will never be successful. Your witness of Jesus will never be successful without this kind of power. Have you learned that yet? I've learned this so many times in my life. I think God wants to teach this lesson to me over and over and over again. 
Sometimes when I stand up here to preach, especially when I'm really going to preach the gospel, I'm like, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can. This is going to be the day. People are going to flood down the aisles because of how great my message is going to be. And it's crickets. And then other times, I'll remember this the rest of my life, there was a time I spoke a message on what it means to be a friend. I didn't even talk about the gospel. And this guy comes forward weeping, saying, I need to receive Christ as my Savior. What's that work there? That ain't me. That's not my power at speaking. That is a power outside of myself. And his name is the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk a lot more about him next week. Sadly, I think the Holy Spirit is not understood as much today by us. But one of our goals in this series is we can't go on mission without understanding the Holy Spirit and getting access to his power. But like the disciples are going to have to wait, Jesus tells them. You're going to have to wait till next week. How's that for a cliffhanger to make sure you're back here? Now, as we close, let me just remind you again of the main idea, not just of today, but of this whole series in Acts. If you're on your notes, we are all, every true follower of Jesus, called to carry Jesus' mission onward in this world. How do we do that? We do it by witnessing through word and deed, through seeing our everyday ordinary lives as the place God has called you. There's going to be a day where God returns and he completes his mission, but in the meantime, listen, you can be assured that God's plan is still on track and it involves us, ordinary people empowered to continue his mission. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word today. And I pray throughout this series, not just today, that it would be living and active in our lives, that you would be calling us upward to something, calling us onward to something. That something is your mission. God, help us not to be afraid or apathetic about what it means to be a witness. It simply means living how you would live in our everyday lives. We realize we need a power beyond ourselves to do that. We acknowledge that to you. We admit that to you. Father, we're thankful that this faith we believe is a historical faith. It's not just an idea. We thank you that Luke took the time, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to write these words out for us so that we could still be inspired and encouraged today. I pray as we move forward in this series that we could see that we ordinary people can be empowered to continue the mission you started when you came. We pray this not just for our sake, but for the sake of so many people who you've placed in our lives who do not yet have the words of eternal life. Do something powerful in the first part of this year. Use your word to inspire us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.